Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to another week uh, podcast of Bright Lights, uh, our weekly excursion into the world of achievers and achievements. Uh, tonight's guest, uh, one of the top achievers, uh, is a former NBA player, Royce White, a current uh, professional player. He's still playing in the three-on-three league. We're going to get into that shortly. Uh, as you know, uh, that is uh, rarefied air to be an uh, NBA player. Uh, a lot of people want to be that. A lot of people dreams. Only a few make it. So uh, we're going to talk to Royce about his experiences there. Uh, as you know, uh, recently we've had, always had in the news uh, mental health issues among uh, athletes. Uh, Naomi Osaka, uh, Serena Williams in the world of tennis. Uh, I think recently at Minnesota Vikings, uh, Griffin. Uh, had some uh, issues here locally we're familiar with. Uh, A.J. Brown with the Tennessee Titans uh, in the world of football. And so we're going to explore that uh, and see what it's like and what type of policies they have in place and what's the experience like in dealing with it, uh, especially in today's uh, media market where you got social media and everything is out, everybody's life is out in front of everyone. So we're going to talk uh, to Royce about his experience there. And uh, just uh, all his sacrifices and his, his attitude, his perspective, how he overcame obstacles to achieve his goals. So we're going to get into all of that and leave some positive messages uh, for our young people. Well, I couldn't think of too many things. Normally, I start off my uh, podcast with uh, uh, in the news this week. And I guess the thing that came to my mind is that right now they want uh, vaccination cars to eat in Minneapolis and St. Paul restaurants. And, you know, I, I can't keep track of all this stuff, man, that they want. And so uh, I'll be probably uh, eating mostly outside of Minneapolis and St. Paul when I go out to eat until they uh, eliminate that uh, particular policy. Uh, I just, well, I, I just read. and I'll just leave it that way. I read for myself and understand for things for myself. Um, I may make an exception because I feel sorry for the uh, restaurants downtown and the businesses down there, uh, what they've done and uh, all the policies that basically uh, bankrupt a lot of them, put them out of business. But so th that's uh, the big item, I think, in the news that affect me here personally, because me and my wife, we like to go out and grab a nice dinner every once in a while. But once again, until they get rid of that policy, I'll be eating in St. Louis Park and other places besides Minneapolis and St. Paul. Uh, so that's that for that. Uh, we talked about uh, Mr. White here. Oh, by the way, uh, while you're at it, go out and uh, click on the bell for notifications. Uh, click like. Uh, click the subscribe button. Uh, we have an online store, so go out there and see if there's anything of interest there for you. And uh, support the program. Uh, so that's it as far as introduction tonight. I want to get directly to our guest tonight and have him share uh, some of his life experiences and uh, accomplishments uh, with your achievements with you tonight. So uh, without further ado, uh, we're going to bring on uh, Mr. Royce White. Uh, welcome to Bright Lights, Royce. Thanks for having me, Lacey. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, I appreciate having you here. Well, uh, as I told the audience before you, we brought you on, 
uh, you've basically been an achiever here in the world of athletics and basketball and other things here uh, all the while I've known you. Uh, give us a little background before we get into your uh, basketball career and your NBA career. Give us a little background uh, as far as your childhood and growing up. I know you spent some time playing basketball over here in the hood and things. So yeah. just give us a little background on uh, uh, your uh, childhood growing up, Royce, your family and everything. <clears throat> well, again, thanks for having me, uh, Lacey. I, I would say that I am a product of the Twin Cities through and through in that I was born and raised in St. Paul. Um, I grew up in a single parent household, although my father was in, in my life in a capacity, but he didn't live with us. Um, so, you know, my mother was a single mother and she worked as an esthetician, you know, working class woman who made ends meet with tips, right? Cash tips. Um, and, and we lived downtown St. Paul, but my family is originally from the Rondo neighborhood. Both of my families, my grandfather on my mom's side and my grandmother on my mom's side. Um, I have very deep West side roots. My Mexican family, uh, helped found Our Lady of Guadalupe, which is the Mexican Catholic church there on the West side. And, uh, I played basketball on the North side, you know, my, for the better part of my childhood. Uh, my mother worked in Edina. My grandfather, Frank White, was the director of park and board uh, for Richfield. My grandmother worked for the attorney general. She also worked uh, in, in South Minneapolis. So uh, I'm a product. Of, I'm a product of a bunch of Twin Cities neighborhoods. I'll say that. And, and, and because of that, I have a very, very deep love and loyalty to Minnesota, but the Twin Cities as well. Um, you know, I grew up playing basketball on the north side, like I said, for the Minneapolis Hustlers, which is one of the, you know, few grassroots teams that produced a fair number of pros uh, that, that came out of Minnesota, whether it was directly in my era or the eras that came after. A lot of, a lot of young guys played for the Minneapolis Hustlers there over north. Um, and, yeah, I'd say right around seventh or eighth grade, I started to go to school in the east side community you know, in, in St. Paul. I went to Cleveland Junior High because I lived downtown St. Paul. So the nearest school to me was Cleveland Junior High on the east side on arcade there and uh, got looped in with the Johnson High School uh, basketball program. And, and finally, when I made it to the ninth grade, I decided to go to De La Salle. Um, and, and, you know, that was the start of my my all-American high school basketball career, we could say. So how old were you? before you realize, hey, I can be pretty good at this? It, it came on a little later, right? It was like seventh, eighth grade, I'd say. I was, you know, I, I played in a tournament one weekend and, you know, I was able to do a lot of the things that I wanted to do on the court in terms of scoring, passing, you know, rebounding, uh, blocking shots, getting steals. And, and you know, that, that was probably the first time I really – had an idea that I could that I could take basketball at least far enough to get a, a, a scholarship. Okay, and did you ever think of being anything else when you grew up? When, do you remember the age when you first said, hey, I want to be this when I grow up. I want to do this for a living. And was it basketball or was it something else? You know, I, I, grew, up in the, I grew up in the Chicago Bulls era, right? I'm a 90s baby, so mm -hmm. I guess – 
my conception of professional basketball was such a high standard, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Michael Jordan was the, and still is, the pinnacle of basketball, right, in terms of skill and ability. So I guess, you know, for a long time growing up, I, I had, I loved the game. I just, I started playing when I was five years old. I actually started playing in South St. Paul because my grandmother lived in West St. Paul, um, but I eventually ended up over north around third grade. But I started in kindergarten in South St. Paul, so I never really th thought of um, being good enough to play professional. Obviously, I wanted to. I idolized a lot of the professional players. I watched the NBA a lot. Uh, you know, WGN was a local champ. Back then during cable, you had WGN, and so we got all the Bulls home games. So I watched a lot of professional basketball, but I just never thought about in terms of being a professional basketball player. Um, I did have an understanding of our financial situation and me potentially being able to use basketball to get a, a scholarship to college. Um, but when I was young, I used to say I wanted to be an architect. Uh, and, and, and then uh, I got old enough to realize that I really wasn't that good at drawing. <laughs> uh, so, you know, not, not, now you could be an architect and not draw. Uh, but, right, but right, right, right. In between there, 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 that wasn't, yeah. you know, there wasn't all these apps that, that drew stuff for you. So, um, you know, that, that was one of my early childhood uh, dreams, you could say, was to be an architect. But I really liked archaeology. I was into archaeology early. Um, I was into uh, ancient civilizations and history early. Um, but, but it never dawned on me to be anything professional relating to those, to those fields. I just, I just had a, a strong light for those, those topics in school. When I was at home, I read books about history and ancient civilization and things of that nature. Yeah, some of the things that I read about you indicates that you've always been a pretty good scholar and interested in school and learning and things like that. What, uh, how do, what do, who do you attribute it? Both, first of all, your athletic skills to which parent just attribute that to it. Which parent do you attribute more? Your, uh, don't, uh, hey, don't, it's just don't, an academic. Don't, don't try to get me in trouble with mom, Dukes, and then. <laughs> okay, let's get um, that. You know, we, we, we have very strong athletic genes on both sides. My father, uh, you know, he was originally from Omaha, born in Omaha, but he grew up in Detroit. Um, and he and my mother met when they were in their early 20s. Uh, and and he, was, he graduated from a D2 school uh, and, and, you know, got his degree, but he played basketball there. He was on scholarship. Um, so, you know, he was, you know, six, seven, built okay. like me, was okay. a little bit more athletic, probably, they say, uh, and shot the ball well. So there, there was that side of the family uh, and the genes that came from my father. But on my mom's side, although my mom didn't really play sports, she's five foot 11. So she had okay. a, a very, uh, you know, she, she gifted me genetically, uh, for okay. sure. But she didn't play sports too much. But my mother's family... For example, my grandfather, Frank White, again, and, and my uncle, uh, Junior White, uh, were, were both, you know, high-level high school athletes. Um, and, you know, they played multiple sports. Uh, and then my grandfather, Louis White, who is, you know, we, we call Louis, you know, Louis White Jr. We call him Junior, but uh, his father was, was Louis White as well. Um, he still holds the... I think he still holds the batting average for St. Paul uh, high schools in baseball. And oh, he wow. batted like 720 uh, his senior year. 
Uh, so he was an incredible baseball player, and he probably could have played in the Negro Leagues, but he had uh, uh, my grandfather early when he was young. And at that time, when the Barnstormers came through and they wanted to bring a player on to go travel, if you had a family, you stayed home and worked because they weren't paying much for you to do that at the right, time. Right, right, right. Um, so, but, but he was, you know, he was a baseball player that was locally somebody they would come and get when they had barnstorming uh, games here locally in the Twin Cities. And, and many of the players that did play in the Negro Leagues and that did participate in those barnstorming uh, games back in, in, in his day uh, speak very highly of his skill. So, you know, he was an incredible athlete. And then, you know, my, my grandfather's very close friend who was like a, a, an uncle to me is Dave Winfield. So I grew up in a sports family, to say right. the least. Okay, well, we're we're going to get past the basketball here in a little bit, but I do want to uh, tie up a couple of things. I do know you won, I think, uh, two state championships, high school basketball championships here, mm -hmm. one with De La Salle, uh, which I think at the time was a 3A school, and then one with Hopkins, I think at the time was a 4A school. Yeah. And then um, I think, if I recall correctly, you ended up initially attending the University of Minnesota. You was a gopher initially. Yeah. Because uh, I remember there was always this big cry where we didn't get a lot of the great Minnesota players. They went elsewhere. And you were one of the people that stayed here, and I remember that. And then eventually I think you transitioned to Iowa State. Uh, explain to our audience uh, wh why starting off at Minnesota and then eventually transitioning to Iowa State, where I recall that's where you really made your rep at and, and, and all the fame as a college player came. Yeah, well, well, by the time I was a senior in high school, well, first of all, when the first rankings came up, rankings were a new thing for high school basketball, relatively new when I got to high school in, in the sense that the Internet was becoming more popular. So people were checking the online scouting services more frequently. So right. those became more popular. And when the first set of rankings came out for what used to be Rivals.com, I'm not sure if it is now, I think it just it may be. ESPN.com or 24-7 Sports, I'm not sure which one, it, but anyway, Rivals.com was the big scouting service at the time, and uh, when their first rankings came out for my class, I was one of the top 25 players. I was ranked 17th, um, and, and I was the second small forward in my class. So throughout high school, I was already in that All-American tier when it came to national recognition, uh, which I was fortunate to to have. I mean, before my era, let's say Minnesota basketball wasn't respected the same way. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we weren't on the national scene, partly because a lot of the national writers were located on the coasts, right? right? right. And they just didn't get to see Minnesota basketball at a grassroots level. Now, after my class came through and we sort of broke that shell and the internet became more accessible, you see players like Tyus Jones and, and Rashad Vaughn and some of the, you know, Gary Trent Jr. and, you know, Jalen and all these other younger players now that were at the top of the rankings right away. Right, right, was, right, right. It was unheard of that a Minnesota player be ranked number one, mostly right. because they didn't even see us. So um, by the time I had gotten to Hopkins my senior year, I mean, I had offers from almost everybody in, in the country. I had a, a, a lot of... Uh, can you still hear me, Lacey? Yes, I can. Uh huh. Yeah, I had a lot of offers, you know, all, all over the country. So um, my approach to the selection process was always 
Minnesota first. And, you know, I'm a Minnesota loyalist, a loyalist, and I admit that, especially when it comes to sports. You could, you could not, I could not like you personally, but if you're competing as an athlete from Minnesota or for Minnesota sports team, I'm by default cheering for you. Right. Um, and I, I mean, I just grew up in a Minnesota sports family, so that's just kind of, you know, how I was, how I came up. Um, so I wanted to go to the University of Minnesota. I understood the history of the university's basketball team and, and the fact that we hadn't gotten a lot of high-level recruits, the few that we had. Um, Chris Humphreys was from Hop, did come from Hopkins, and he had played at the U of M for one season. Um, and, and I came so, uh, about five, six years after him. You know, they didn't have as much success as they as they wanted to have with his team. And, you know, I just wanted to, to do something that, that was going to bring the community together. And I know that basketball had always been uh, that for me growing up. But also when I had been at the University of Minnesota for basketball games, I spent a lot of time watching Gopher games coming up. So it was an easy decision, even though University of North Carolina was offering me and Texas and, you know, USC and all of these huge major colleges in these, you know, real special places in our country. Um, you know, I was, I was loyal to Minnesota. Okay. And then uh, I think it's safe to say, and you can correct me, you helped put Iowa State uh, Cyclones on the college basketball map also. Uh, tell us about your experience at Iowa State, because that's when I think you really uh, gained national attention and moved up the draft board. Uh, so what, yeah. what was that experience like at so, Iowa State? So I, tra I, I transferred to Iowa State um, my freshman summer. And <clears throat> it was interesting how that all came about when I decided to transfer for the University of Minnesota, which which I, I hated that I, I, had, I had to do. They actually wanted me to come back and play the, the year after I had to sit, which all had to do with that entire legal situation. You know, and, and, and right. we'll maybe talk about that a different time. But um, – I was done playing basketball. I wasn't even going to play anymore. And a mutual friend from the Nike circuit knew me and had and was connected to John Calipari. And John Calipari was interested in having me come to Kentucky. And I actually committed to go to Kentucky. Um, and, and there was Baylor was also in the mix when I decided to transfer because Jared Nunez was down at Baylor and he was a Hopkins guy. Uh, and, and then UCLA was also in the mix as well because I I, I, I just loved UCLA's history, the, the, the right, history yeah. of the program. Uh -huh. And also uh, UCLA has a beautiful campus for anybody who hasn't been there. Uh, so, you know, at the time, Iowa State wasn't even in the mix. And then I got a call from another mutual friend who knew me and also knew Fred Boyberg, who was going to be the incoming coach at Iowa State. Obviously, that was his alma mater. Mm -hmm. And it was going to be his first year. And, and we had a lot of long conversations uh, just about life, about my story, what his plan was for the team. Uh, and and he, he had played with Kevin Garnett. So Kevin Garnett was one of those players who really transformed what a power forward did in the game. And there were times even when Flip Saunders would use Kevin Garnett bringing the ball up as a point guard when Sam Cassell got hurt in one of their better years, uh, one of the better runs that the Wolves had. So we had those kind of discussions from a basketball standpoint. And when the time came for me to go to Kentucky, um, I had a conversation with Calipari. It didn't go so well. Uh, not that me and him had any problems. I just, I didn't really like the, the, the microscope that was on Kentucky at the time and, and, and what that meant for the players and how they lived day to day on the campus. 
So I decided to go to Iowa State, and, and that's where, you know, the magic began. Iowa State had been down for a while. Uh, they, they hadn't been having much success for about seven, eight years. I had to go there. I had to sit a year. Uh, we filed a waiver for me to be able to play right away, which now in, in this day and age, you can transfer without penalty. That wasn't the case then. So I had to sit a year. Uh, and, and Fred and those guys did well his first year. Uh, and then the second year when I was able to play, we got picked to finish in the last three or the bottom three of the Big 12. We ended up finishing uh, third overall and, and making our first NCAA tournament appearance for Iowa State in the previous 10 years. So it was a big turnaround for Iowa State as a program at the time. So, uh, well, let me just mention a few of your uh, basketball accomplishments here. And we're going to get into uh, some of the issue with the NBA and you're getting drafted in the first round there. Uh, we mentioned that you uh, was Minnesota Mr. Basketball in 2009. You was a Jordan Brand All-American. Uh, we talked about your time at Iowa State where you was the first uh, team All-Big 12. And then uh, uh, you did play in the uh, Canadian National Basketball League where you won a couple of championships. I think you were MVP uh, championship twice, 2017 and 2018. You was MVP of the league. In 2017, uh, I I found this interesting. You were a scoring champion. I never thought of you as a scorer, and we had to talk about that a little bit. You're a scoring champion in 2018. Uh, you was all NBL in Canada first team 2017 and 2018. But uh, let's well, first of all, before we start off with the, your first being a first round draft choice of the yeah. Houston Rockets. Uh, I just want to delve a little, one second into the scoring champion thing. I never thought of you as a scoring champion, but you had it in you, Han Royce. Explain that uh, how, uh, that experience, being a scoring champion up in in the Canada, just being that championship uh, type of ball. Well, well you gotta, to know that, you have to know my history uh, at De La Salle. When I played at De La Salle, um, I averaged probably 22, 23 points a game. And, and that's a lot even for a star player at the South because Dave Thorson, uh, you know, back then ran an offense that was very conservative. Offense. Right. Uh -huh. he, he emphasized getting the ball swarm, uh, ball reversals, and he really only wanted his best player taking shots. He was very big on shot selection. Uh, so even as the best player on the team at the time, I was very conscious of the shots that I took. Uh, even though I had, the, you know, the conceptual green light. So I was a scorer, you know, in my early years in, in, in high school. And then when I got to Hopkins, I was playing with eight other D1 players. Right, right, right. right. Some of them would, would be D1 later on when they graduated who were younger than us. But, you know, I always tell people to understand how good our 09 Hopkins basketball team is. You have to realize that we had two people become Mr. Basketball that sat the bench when we played. Right, right, <laughs> uh, right, right. And that's because we had five seniors that all went went on to play professional basketball and, and went to great D1 programs. And, and because of that, you know, we blew a lot of teams out my senior year. So, you know, we would be up 20-30 in the first 10 minutes of the game, and I'd sit the whole second half. Right. And so I only averaged about 14 points then. Uh, and, and also, you know, I played with some other really good players, so – I really liked and enjoyed distributing the ball um, mm -hmm. at, at that at that juncture, and so <clears throat> on the circuit, I was always a scorer, right? I always was a guy who who, who could put the ball in the basket on the circuit, 
Um, and, you know, I guess when I got to Iowa State, we had a unique situation, right? I had to play point guard and I knew that I had to sacrifice my scoring ambitions or my, my, my desire to score in order for the team to be as good as we possibly could because we had a lot of shooters. We had a lot of guys who had transferred, who had had some, you know, like you could say trouble uh, in, in previous, at their previous schools uh, and just were looking for a new situations. So when you have that type of dynamic, you have to understand as, as the leader of the team or the best player on the team, how can I get the most out of the guys around me? Right. And in order in order to do that, I had to be less concerned with scoring and more concerned with um, team morale. OK. Right. right. Uh -huh. When I got to Canada, all that was out the window, because by the time I had got to Canada, I had been blackballed from the NBA for four, four years. And so I had a chip on my shoulder. And, and it's not to say that I wasn't still passing the ball in Canada because I led the team in assists as well. Uh, but but I was more focused, especially in a professional four quarter game. I was more conscious of, of my ability to be able to score 25, 26, 27 points over the course of four quarters. So you mentioned being blackball in the NBA, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. But first, uh, you were uh, first round draft choice. I think you were drafted number 16th in the first round by the Houston Rockets. Now. By that time, according to my understanding, uh, they were aware of your, I think they call it generalized anxiety disorder. Yes. Uh, they were aware of that when they drafted you. Yeah. But somehow during that first year, seems like there was some miscommunication and misunderstanding there. And I don't no. know. I'm not, okay, go ahead. Why don't you give me your side? Of, no. No. I, <laughs> okay, straighten <laughs> us out here. Uh, I just know that. Well, you were in the, it was in the news, and your audience, sometimes your audience. I got to tell your audience, you know. Okay, I, yeah, I straight, it. straight, so straight it out. Come on, boys. But okay. no, so I, I, I've been able to, you know, condense my 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 initial conflict with the NBA down. So I, I'll take a few minutes just to kind of right. okay. un, unravel that because the media industrial complex that we are fighting today was already at work back then when it comes to important social topics like mental health but but one of the one of the subliminal issues in that was uh psycho predatory psychological manipulation and we'll talk about that shortly okay we'll talk about that shortly but when i left iowa state i had been really open uh or during my, my final months at iowa state i had been open about my struggles with anxiety disorder or my, not even my struggles, let's just say my diagnosis with anxiety right. uh -huh. disorder. Uh -huh. And so it became a big story. And the reason why it became a big story was because I was so open and talking about it with the media. So at the time, I didn't, I didn't really see any reason to try and hide it. I mean, I just, it was something I dealt with and I was like, hey, you know, it actually came up spontaneously in an interview. Somebody asked me a question about, you know, what my pregame ritual was. And I told them that I didn't eat before the games because of my anxiety. My stomach got nervous on the morning of games. And uh, he was like, wait, circle back? You can't just skip over that anxiety piece. What are you talking about? And I was like, yeah, I have generalized anxiety. I've been diagnosed since I was 16. So that was actually the start of it. Then the stories became about, you know, me being a little bit nervous with flying and things like that. So by the time I had finished the season and we were in the NCAA tournament, 
and we played UConn and Kentucky, which both had top 10 lottery draft picks on the team, mm-hmm. it became an even bigger story because I performed very well against those guys. And the narrative was now, okay, not only is Royce, Royce's stock on the rise for the NBA draft, but it looks like he's a NBA ready guy right now. Like the way he's making these guys look tells us that he can step in and play for a team right now. Um, from a skill standpoint, footwork, uh, just to passion for the game, you know, could do multiple things. I was the only player in the country to lead my team in all five major stats, yeah, really which is uh-huh. rarefied error by, by any basketball standard. Um, and the draft boards began to ask the question, okay, well, how is the NBA going to take this whole anxiety piece? And so that's when I started to hear it because I got an agent, I declared for the draft, and then the conversations we had was, how are the NBA teams taking the anxiety piece? And it was in those conversations that we realized that the, the, the mental health topic was kind of uncharted territory for the NBA as an institution, mm-hmm. at least in the public sense, at least in having a public stance on mental health. So when the media came to me to ask me about it, it was almost as if, the entire sports industry was was quizzing me or, or you know, uh, kind of giving me, a, a, you know, a pop quiz about mental health. Uh, and, and all I could take was a little bit of knowledge that I had acquired in the short time from being 16 with my doctors and, and my team trainers that had worked with me uh, to, to help manage my anxiety. And so I was, you know, I was very raw and authentic in my answers. Mm-hmm come up to the draft and, you know, I get drafted 16th, but the consensus was that I was a top five talent, no doubt. Mm-hmm. And in, in reality, uh, I was so NBA ready that most people thought if Anthony Davis was one, then I was probably two or three mm-hmm. uh, because I had outplayed Anthony Davis so clearly in our in our game against each other when Iowa State played Kentucky in that, that the tournament. So I dropped to 16. And then, you know, as when I got when I got with Houston and I, I got to the team and we sort of went through the, the summer process of summer league and then they have what's called a rookie transition program. Um, I started to be very skeptical of how the establishment really viewed mental health as an issue. And I started to ask questions. And eventually after our rookie transition program, which is the seminar that helps rookies transition into the league and avoid all of the landmines, right? The people who want to steal your money, the girl who's going to lie on you and say that she, you know, you raped her or your, your, your family member who's going to try and con you out. You know, all of those four warnings from ex-players and attorneys and people from the league. Um, that was kind of what the rookie transition program seminar is about, which they still have to this day. But during that seminar, I heard Chris Heron speak, who used to go to, you know, who's from Boston. And he was the player who was famously had the, the very uh, severe heroin addiction. I remember. Okay. He had one of the most powerful presentations I've ever heard in my entire life at that program. And he was very raw and authentic and honest about his experience being addicted to heroin. And I remember sitting there listening to it and, and understanding that some of the things I had felt internally with anxiety was what he was expressing in being addicted to heroin, even though my anxiety or my feelings weren't drug-induced. Right. Um, they were still similar. 
And what that triggered me to do was go back and read my collective bargaining agreement and check and see what the real policies were about mental health. And when I discovered there was not a single mention of mental health in our collective bargaining agreement, I asked the NBA to create a policy. And, and that's where the real friction started. So on the surface, just asking the NBA to create a mental health policy, uh, we don't see, at least I don't see why that should cause friction. Well, uh, here, here's, well the, here's the reason, help explain and I didn't know this then, but the reason why it caused friction was number one, I was a young black male athlete who had the audacity to read my contract. Okay, okay, okay got most, gotcha. most of the, let's just be honest, most of the young black males who get drafted into the NBA have all of their agents look over all of their paperwork and that's what the middlemen are there to do for young black athletes because a lot of them come out of school early um, and, and their education is shaky. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with saying that. Any athlete right. who tells you otherwise is lying to you. Okay. Um, so I was one of the very few athletes that that had the you know the 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 inclination to really read my collective bargaining agreement line for line, and then when I challenged it, it was a to it was a totally total different level of audacity. It was you're 21 years old, you've never scored a point in this league. How dare you question us about policy? Um, and and so those were all of the surface arguments. But what I realized later on was that. The NBA is the, a, a representative of a global corporate community, okay? Mm -hmm. And the mm -hmm. global corporate community's number one goal is to preserve the status quo at all costs, okay? Mm -hmm. and, and I was a disruptor. And not only was I a disruptor, I threatened to have other players disrupt as well. And, and, and ultimately, the question I was asking about mental health and what I was saying at the time about mental health wasn't really about anxiety or depression or OCD or even addiction. I was really saying that this meant the, the, the scope that the scope of mental health that you all have is actually off in its premise. You guys think of mental health as the anom these anomalies, these players who are anomalies who usually get in trouble for some type of issue that they hadn't dealt with. Mm -hmm. which is a which is a real thing there are a lot of players who have mental health issues at the root of some of their troubles right but i was trying to say and convey what the medical community had already agreed on that mental health was really a spectrum for everybody that everyone had right. mental health right right and right, that yeah. actually more people who weren't diagnosed there, there are more people with severe mental health issues that aren't diagnosed than there are people who are diagnosed right Right. Two thirds of the people who have mental health diagnosed, who are mentally ill, let's say, never get diagnosed. Sixty-six percent of the people with mental health issues never get diagnosed, and I actually think that that number is can really conservative. Right. Um, so, what I was trying to convey is, mental health is a better way to say the human condition, where mind, body, and spirit converge into our perceivable existence. If they were going to acknowledge that, they would have to divorce themselves from the ethos of the entire corporatocracy around them. And one of the main, uh, one of the main, one of the main ideas, or one of the main 
intentions of the corporatocracy in the years to come was to ride the wave of big tech and a social media industry that had explicit plans to be predatory around human psychological vulnerability, right? Mm -hmm. and, and see, I didn't know that at the time, but the corporatocracy knew. The NBA and their Wall Street friends, the bankers and, and the lawyers and the investment managers and the social media oligarchs, they all knew what the, what the growth model was coming out of Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. They knew about the internet bubble and they knew what they planned on doing with social media. And it was all predicated around dopamine. Okay, mm -hmm. and dopamine is the drug that the social media oligarchs have now come out and said and admitted, we built our growth model on giving you a dopamine hit as yep. fast as we possibly can in your yep. user experience. Yep, you know and you're so getting it. Those guys knew that, I had no clue. So I'm sitting here going, why don't you guys want a mental health policy? I had no clue that there was a trillion dollar power grab that was coming four years ahead of me. Yeah, you're getting advanced here. Uh, talking about the dopamine and the, the social media, and you're exactly right. Uh, uh, so here's the thing. You, you talked about the collective bargaining agreement, mm -hmm. not addressing some of the mental health issues. Is there one thing that, a few things that you would have uh, instilled in the collective bargaining agreement? Give us a couple of things that you would have instilled in the collective bargaining ag agreement to address the mental health issue in a better way than they were currently addressing it? Yeah, well, the first thing I would have done was just acknowledge that health for people in general, but especially players, but any employees, coaches, referees, uh, you know, the, the list goes on, um, need to be a comprehensive health model. Okay. Right. They wanted to separate physical and mental health. I got you. And then in the separation of physical and mental health, they wanted to actually pretend that mental health didn't exist by not putting it on paper because they didn't want to be responsible for it. So the first thing I would did was said, hey, we're going to switch this health language that already exists in our collective bargaining agreement, and we're going to bring in mental health and create an addendum that acknowledges we need a comprehensive health model, that mental health and physical health are are integrative um and and i would have started there and uh you know i, I would have i would have definitely asked a huge question about the alcohol culture in pro sports uh, but it, it, those were all things that weren't even that, that they were they were just non-starters for for those discussions and i had those discussions with david stern and the houston rockets and their attorneys and 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 you know all of the the people all of the power players and, right. and, and behind closed doors, they all agreed. They just said, yeah, I mean, you're right. They couldn't really disagree because the doctors around the situation, even on the league side, were like, yeah, I mean, he's, he's just right. <laughs> um, and they didn't like that. So, you know, all of it was a non-starter, no matter what I had suggested, really. But, yeah, I would have started by just acknowledging mental health as an important key component of comprehensive health. And then I would have addressed the alcohol culture. So from a practical standpoint, here you are, one of the better players uh, in the rook in that rookie class. Mm -hmm. uh, you are drafted by the Rockets. Uh, everything points towards you having a great NBA career. Mm -hmm. And somewhere along the line there, uh, there was a divergence, I guess, between... Uh, your talents and your goals 
mm-hmm. and what the NBA and the Rockets were doing help our audience understand on a detailed kind of uh, day-to-day basis what type of issues were you confronting uh, that eventually led to that uh, total divergence? Well, well, I just asked the question, you know, from the outset. I said, hey, where you guys stand on this mental health issue? And, and okay, is there a policy? Are you willing to make an addendum? If you're not, then we need to make a new policy because one thing I'm not going to do is allow this mental health thing to hang out there and, the, you know, just be this, this sort of cliffhanger that you guys then turn around and use on me when it becomes convenient for me, okay. whether that be in a narrative way or an economic way, come contract time or whatever the case may be. And uh, again, that's just that was just a non-starter. You know, they say, well, we'll deal in good faith. And any 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 <laughs> any knowledgeable American should know that you can never deal with the corporatocracy in good faith. Most things, if not all things, need to be in writing. Uh, uh, and they certainly feel that way. That's why they do business the way they do, where most things, if not all things, are in writing, except this mental health topic for some reason. Right, right, right. right. Uh, so, you know, once I asked the question, the fight was first with my team, then it was the league. You know, the league tried to say, you know, for example, you know, one of my doctors recommended, hey, if you guys are in Chicago and you play in Milwaukee the next night, let them drive. Right. That'll take away some of the anxiety that he has with flying. Is that something we can work out? First, we had the team management say, yes, you can do that. That'd be great. We'll pay for the bus. That's no problem. Then the league came in over top of them and said, if you pay for ground transportation for Royce, we'll consider that a salary cap infringement. And you guys could be fined in the millions of dollars and potentially. Ah, Okay. Okay. Yeah, and so right away I said, "Now nah, that's it. We're, we're going full stop. Either we're going to put a mental health policy in place, or I'm not playing. Period." Right. Uh, and 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 we had to have that that out, right? And, and eventually, what they did to get me to play or to you know report to the D League, because because now since I've made this whole stink about this issue, now the punishment is you're going to the D League. Right, right. <laughs> right. Uh, when I was, again, I was touted as the most NBA-ready player at the right. time. So now they're punishing me by sending me to where? The Rio Grande Valley where, you know, the DEA agent comes up to me at breakfast and tells me about the drug cartel problem there at the border right. <laughs> over <Right>. breakfast. <laughs> That's where they have a D-League team because these people have no concept of, of, uh, of responsibility and, and they're radically negligent. Um, but so, you know, I report to the D-League on the basis that they promised to help put a mental health policy in place when the offseason came. Uh, and when the offseason came, the Houston Rockets just traded me and I never heard anything else about a mental health policy until five, six years later when Kevin Love spoke about having anxiety issues and then the entire culture, uh, be it the NBA and mainstream media as a whole, jumped on the mental health bandwagon. And here we are today, the same policies that I wrote out for the league they now have in place, and 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 I'm and I'm left uh, not even being able to attend training camp. So that's what I mean by blackball. Right, right. So now, uh, when uh, you were in Chicago, and you could have taken ground transportation to Milwaukee, but the league had policies against that. By that time, you were already on contract, right? You had signed your rookie contract and yeah. and things like that. Uh, did they? Were you able to fulfill the whole first contract that you signed and 
and fulfill those obligations the league fulfill their obligations for it, paying you for what you were doing uh did that first contract get fully executed uh was there a time when no, you had my to first just contract had a a huge uh you know dispute let's say um what what the team resorted to when i say i wouldn't play if, if they didn't have a mental health policy was just to find me okay. um, and, and they were finding me a bunch of money uh you know basically until i would play and then when their team doctors came in and said no he's actually right you guys do need a mental health policy because these general managers that went right. to school for business management have no business with managerial autonomy over medical issues right because uh, right. they're just not competent in that in that field uh, so when that happened then the tactic became okay well, we're going to send you to the psychiatrist every day <laughs> forcibly and if you don't go to the psychiatrist then we're going to find you uh, and and the psychiatrist you know i go to the psychiatrist that they assigned me to we talk about the issue i tell him my gripe with the lack of policy he agrees with it he offers to help bridge the gap and create the policy if that's something the team and league would be willing to do. Um, and, and they weren't willing to work with him either. And, and so, you know, he became, either the psychiatrist piece became weaponized against me in this sort of coercion to, to fall in line with, with the establishment. So what was the uh, uh, last year that you played in the NBA? Uh, and part B of that question is, uh, are you – ready, willing, and able to play in the NBA even uh, today? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm ready physically and, and skill-wise for sure. Um, you know, we, we have huge <laughs> – I, I think it's I, – I think – well, the last year I played was that year. I didn't play again after that. Right, right. Okay. Um, I, I was traded to the Philadelphia 76ers, and they cut me before the season started. Um, and, and actually, the G, Sam Hinkey, who was the GM in Philadelphia at that time, had come from Houston. Right, right. So really, what what Daryl Morey had done was trade and dump. It's, it's called a trade and dump. Right. Where you uh -huh, basically uh -huh. send a player to somebody who you know, who you already know is going to get rid of them because right. you're trying to clear cap space. That's a game that's played that the fans don't know about um, behind the scenes in, in front office circles. But um, yeah, I mean, I guess me and the me and the league still have a fundamental issue on multiple on multiple issues now, right? It started around mental health, and, and they tried to play fast and loose with the truth and and do what the corporatocracy has tried to do to the working the working man, you could say, uh, around the world. Uh, but but later on, the issues would be you know the Uyghurs, for example, or the vaccine mandates. So, right. you know, in theory, I've probably been blackballed now three or four different times on four different issues. <laughs> now, uh, so is there any chance that you will ever, now that we have more wisdom about mental health issues and other things, but the NBA still got its rules in there that you got to yeah, follow. Yeah, but it was just never about yeah. mental health. It was never right. about their rules. Right, right. I got you. They, got you. they are uh, an institution that plays chameleonic politics and they want to preserve the status quo. They're centrists, okay? Right. They, 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 they are part of a liberal machine, a liberal uh, globalist machine that has hijacked the status quo 
Okay, and now the way to hold the status quo is to create an ever-expanding middle. Okay, and, and, and part of the ever-expanding middle, obviously, is the race card, which they really don't believe in, really, deep down, but it's, it's just the, the, the default uh, oppression uh, claim to be made around most issues. Um, but, but the real twin turbo engine, I say, is the ever-expanding definition of gender, and the ever-expanding definition of sexual misconduct. And, and those are the two topics that they're going to make culturally uncivilized to disagree with. So they're gonna try and force people to bend the knee right. to their ideology. And, and so it's, 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 it was never about mental health because any sane person would agree that mental health is an important part of overall health. And when you look at it back in retrospect now, the fact that they actually now agreed with the mental health uh, piece of it and had actually implemented the policies that I wrote out myself, um, it, it's clear that it was never about mental health. They're trying to preserve the status quo. And, and part of that status quo is that the, the, the power dynamic, uh, especially operationally or policy-wise, is, is keeps, you know, they keep far away from the, the athletes. So you mentioned earlier about the orientation they give young players, rookies, in the NBA as far as uh, the drugs and, and managing your money and the women and the social life. Mm -hmm. uh, did you find any of those things uh, challenging for you personally uh, that looking back on it, uh, you had some things in that area that uh, you would have done differently? Uh, uh, you, did you run into any of I mean, you're young. <laughs> well, let me come at it this way. You're young. Uh, you're quote unquote spoiled and popular and they give you money uh how do you avoid uh, some of those pitfalls yeah well i, I don't I, I don't agree that these young athletes are spoiled I mean, we gotta remember well yeah that's a good point we'll come back to that one that's a good point i mean yeah. i just you know but 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 i understand that, <laughs> see the the great american trick that's been played on the fans of sports huh? is that the athletes are Prima donnas, you know, divas, spoiled, self entitled, you know, uh, kind of lazy and irresponsible. But the reality is <laughs> that there's kind of this, you, you could call it this, uh, what, what would be the equivalent to an Overton window with corporations, right. where they make it seem like the athletes aren't the common folk. But really, most of the athletes come from blue-collar working families. Right. Right. And so, you know, it's like, they're not really spoiled. I mean, the dynamic between the team and the athlete, the organization and the athlete, is always one of who can get over on the other. And I think the team and the sports culture paint the picture that this is family fun. It's about teamwork and loyalty and, and camaraderie and self-sacrifice, but they're all atheists. They don't believe in self-sacrifice. Right, right. They don't believe in Jesus. Let's just throw it on out there. And right. furthermore, the, the, the bigger point is that, for example, it's not family fun, okay? They use tax dollars to build parking structures next to arenas that were paid with, for, with tax dollars. And they sell alcohol until the fourth quarter and they basically encourage people to drink and then get in their car and drive home with their kid. Let's be honest about what's going on. So 
I reject the whole notion that these young athletes are, you know, getting money and they're spoiled. Okay. Yeah, 21 year olds are going to make mistakes. 18 year olds are going to make mistakes. We know that. But part of the whole culture, too, is that people are just kind of in this spirit of disavowing being a young man and what that means. Young men are supposed to make mistakes. Uh, not to excuse those mistakes, they should pay for their mistakes and they should, they should atone for their mistakes. Um, but, but, you know, I just don't see like, uh, you know, some of these things that, that they make a big deal out of with these athletes is, as being really that big of a deal comparatively to what the establishment does. So. Right, right. So, and that's a good point. You check me on the sport because I've been around, especially college athletes, yeah. and I just know how hard it was for me to keep up without having to go on road trips and, and play in tournaments, uh, finals week and things like that. And uh, my son happened to live in the dorm with uh, some University of Minnesota basketball players. And just to see them walking around with little money, a uh, little time when you get through with the training and the practice and the studying and the trips and things like that. In fact, uh, that college life for them was probably twice as tough as it was for the average student. Lacey, so, Lacey, yeah, we, yeah. <laughs> we used to get up. Look, imagine getting up at six o'clock in the morning and going and running the mile, okay? Going to weight training, and then you got a 9 a.m. class. Right. And it and, 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 and this this is just to show you, try and connect the dots from the top down on how corporatocracy and establishment tyranny has festered in the shadows of the American people, okay? They're now starting to pay players for their likeness, right? That's a recent development. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Which I agree with. If you do mm -hmm. the work and you're in a market and you bring in a certain amount of revenue, you're entitled to that money. This is the the the, the idea that you wouldn't be is is kind of communist just in in practice, right? It's mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. You guys make all the money and you just decide what it is we need. It's like no, nah, that's that's not that's not American. But um, just to go back to when I was in college. We had players who were getting NCAA violations and being suspended from teams for getting a ride to class from team managers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't even get me started on the NCAA. Going to, wait, wait, wait. Going to class, you were getting, you were actually getting penalized for getting a ride to go to school. Yeah. Yeah. Because they said that that was extra privilege. So, again, that was one of those situations where, you know, they spin the narrative like, well, all the other kids have to make their way to, to school to class on their own. Yeah. And some of them are working and they have to balance their schedule. But the NCAA athletes have to maintain a certain level of credits in order to stay eligible by an arbitrary NCAA guideline in order to, to graduate on time. When you're a regular student, you can graduate on your own at your own pace. Right, we know right, college right, students right, been in right. college for 10 years. <laughs> but in order to be an NCAA athlete and be eligible, you have to be on par to uh, on course to graduate in the four years of your scholarship, which makes sense. Right, right. But that means that the schedules are going to be on a very uh, constraint basis. And the basketball schedule for your team may conflict with that. So if I'm rolling yep. out of weights at 845, that means my team manager may have to get me across campus and drive me there. And I can't be penalized for that by the incident. That's just a racket. Right, right, right. right. And right. so, and that's where those things I think people have missed 
Um, and I just know about those things from actually having lived it. So let's talk a little bit about your NBA experience and share a few things. I'm just curious about them personally. Yeah. Uh, of all the players you played against, who were you most impressed by? From a skill level, you say this is probably the best player I ever been on the court with. That's tough, man. I, I mean, I'm, this is a, give me this a two a, or three of them, then. Give me a, give me a list. Pick out a few. I mean, Le, LeBron James is 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 a freak. I, I I didn't play against him in the NBA. Um, I was one of the players when the Nike All American camps uh, changed into the, the LeBron James Skills Academy. Um, I was I was at the first annual and second annual LeBron James Skills Academy, which was the new Nike All American camp, top hundred camp. Uh, and LeBron James played with us during that time, and, and you know maybe it was just my 16 year old eyes, but he was you know he was a freak. He was he was incredible um, as an athlete, and uh, you know I played with James Harden, so he's an incredible right. basketball player, a very skilled, very uh, knowledgeable, uh, crafty, talented, creative basketball player. Um, and yeah, I mean, I used to play at the gym with KG, and, and KG was an incredible player as well. Uh, so yeah, I mean, those would be three that I would that I would throw out there, uh, you know, just just off the top of my head. Yeah. So, and as long as we're talking a little bit about the mental aspect of the game, as you move like from one level to the next, that's a mental adjustment. Like when you move from high school to college, mm -hmm. uh, you got everybody who was Mr. Basketball now on your team. And, yeah. and, and, and you aren't the top dog necessarily. You have to earn their pecking order. And when you're in high school and you're the star player, you can miss the first three or four or five shots. And you know, your teammates still got confidence in you, but now you're thrown into this group group of strangers. You have to prove yourself all over again. And then same thing going from college to the NBA, uh, how did you uh, uh, handle the mental aspect of going from one level of competition uh, to the next? Um, and what made you not lose your confidence? Uh, I mean, for somebody who, who who lived with anxiety disorder, I think I think I, I I think I proved that anxiety is not what people think it would be. That there are plenty of people that not only function well with anxiety but are high functioning. I mean, I was. I was living and playing with anxiety disorder and I was all American D one athlete in a power in a power six conference in the big 12. Um, and, you know, from a mentality standpoint, I always came with a chip on my shoulder because Minnesota never got any respect. Right. Right. So every time I was in a new environment or a new setting where there were players that weren't from Minnesota, I always right. played with, with a chip because it, I had something to prove. Uh, and, and, and I didn't really, you know, I, I was a scrappy player. You know, I get in your face. I, I you know, I trash talk you. I just won the I just won the trash talk of the year award in the big three this past season. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're talking about <laughs> the that. Previous, bit, the man. previous winners were Stephen Jackson and Gary Payton. So, you know, I mean, oh, yeah. Jim Cullen, oh, yeah. Two, they're they're oh, both yeah. by trash talkers. So. Um, you know, I was a trash talker and I was gritty and, and I just played hard. You know, I, I took it very serious. Uh, and, and when I wasn't on the court, I spent time watching film. I spent time in the weight room. I was a fanatic about doing push-ups and, and, and just strengthening my body when I was at home and my downtime. 
And, uh, you know, so by the time I got on the court, I was confident in my ability to be able to play uh, with anyone, really. Wow. So uh, you mentioned your three-on-three. We had talked about your college, high school, college, NBA career, Canadian professional career. But you're also involved right now on the, uh, I think it's called Big Three, three-on-three. Uh, tell us a little bit about that league and what's going on there and, and I think you really had recently had a tournament. I think you did in California, something in California. Tell us about the three-on-three -three, uh, league that yeah, your professional well, the, league you're involved in. The Big Three was a league that was started by Ice Cube, and the right. concept yep. of it at, in, in its origins was that there were all these players who had retired from the NBA but still liked to play. Uh, maybe they were a little old and their bodies couldn't necessarily do the things that they used to do, but but they still wanted to play and a lot of people still wanted to see them play, you know, and still wanted to be able to, you know, engage with them and watch them. Um, and, and so I think that was the inception of the big three. And then I think that Ice Cube realized that, wait a second, there are players out there who aren't retired, <laughs> who, who the establishment just missed, or in my case, blackball. And mm -hmm. so I, was, I wasn't involved in the big three until season three. And uh, they had lowered the the age, uh, the minimum age, down to twenty five that year, uh, and then and then COVID hit. So I played in that that first season. That went well. Uh, we we had a blast, and we were still traveling out on the road, city to city. Then the following season, I was going to play uh, again, obviously, uh, but COVID canceled our season. That was twenty twenty. And this past season was the first year that we were back playing and, and uh, we were mainly based in Las Vegas. Uh, and we, we had one week where we traveled to Dallas. We were supposed to do Dallas, New Orleans, um, but New Orleans had a COVID spike. And so we ended up shifting gears and going to Milwaukee, Chicago, because they have a, a, a big following or a big, you know, a big uh, market for the big three in the summers. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I got COVID that week. So I ended up missing three games in 10 days because we had two Thursday, Saturday, and then the following Saturday, and I was on a 14-day quarantine at the time. Um, but, but the season went well overall. You know, uh, it, it was fun. I had a lot of moments. I made a lot of statements, a lot of political statements. They let me, they let me say what I want to say. Um, and and, and the, the entire big three staff, uh, the ownership, uh, the, the board, all of those people are very supportive of of, of who I am personally, and, and I respect Ice Cube a lot for doing that. Uh, it comes at a great cost to him personally, I know, uh, and the big three as a league to be able to stand in the fire and take the heat for, for some of the stuff that a player like me says or some of the other guys as well. But we're starting to get younger now in the big three, and uh, the, the, the teams are getting good, and, and it's very competitive because we're getting much younger now. I have a lot of respect for Ice Cube. I've heard him talk on uh, quite a few things, economic development and just societal type things. So I have a lot of respect for him. If the our audience want to follow you uh, on the three-on-three -three circuit, uh, what's the name of your team that you're on? Uh, I play for the power. But, you know, when the big three plays, mm -hmm. uh, all the teams play on the same day. So, if right. you, uh -huh. you know, when the big three season starts. I, I see. Yep, yep, yep. We're usually on CBS on Saturdays, and, and I, 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 I believe we have uh, an agreement still this season for this next coming season with CBS on Saturdays, um, and, and we also 
played with the, the, the Triller app, which is a new sports app. You, you've seen some of the latest boxing fights on that. The, the Jake Pauls and people like that are, you know, the Triller's starting to get into sports a little bit. So we, we were on that app. Um, but yeah, I mean, CBS, we're, we're on CBS on Saturday. So, you know, we all play on the same day. Yeah, and I've seen that. I watched for you there. And then, by the way, I'm going to go back and watch your Kentucky-Iowa State game and uh, against Anthony Davis. And, yeah, I remember seeing you in some of those tournaments. One line, a couple of things. we got to wrap it up here. I'll, I'm going to have to have you back because I don't pace things enough well here. Uh, you did uh, also have some experience in MMA, mixed martial arts. Uh, am I correct there? Have you made your professional debut? Are you still at the amateur level? Uh, what's yeah. your plans in that particular uh, profession? Yeah, so I, I mean, I've been training. I, I picked, I decided to start training mixed martial arts back in 2019, middle 2019. And uh, yeah, I just made my professional debut here in, in, in December, this, this past December, December 10th, so about a month ago. Uh, and I lost in a decision, um, but I felt really comfortable in there. I probably, I, I, I did some things now looking back that a lot of people run into trouble with just from having their first fight. And, and my first fight was professional. I didn't have any amateur fights, which most guys take some amateur fights first, but you know, just being who I am, I, I wanted to jump right in the fire. Um, and I performed well, given given that. Uh, I probably should have won the fight. Just a couple of things that I, that I needed to adjust, and I would have won the fight pretty easily. I, I was never hurt in the fight. I never felt like I was in danger in the fight. Uh, you know, I, I spent I, I, I spent three five-minute rounds in a cage, and, and I'm, I still look this beautiful. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm confident about going forward with MMA, and, and I'm supposed to. I'm scheduled to fight again April 15th back out at Mystic, Mystic Lake Casino. And uh, I'm excited. I love I love MMA. I love training. Uh, martial arts has been a godsend to me in terms of, of um, to find an arena to compete again, but also uh, understanding the the long term benefits of of discipline. Um, and, and martial arts brings a different level of discipline and commitment. Uh, than I think people really understand and realize, and it's, it's been it's been a godsend for me, no doubt. Okay, so Ross, we really appreciate you being here and sharing your experiences with us. A couple of quick things before we go, because I'm running a little late, but I do know that uh, you do have, as you indicated, an audience probably have have concluded already that you have a social conscience and that you were involved in some of the activities around the George Floyd killings. I know, mm -hmm. uh, as you indicated earlier, you uh, seem like uh, you're more conservative uh, than a liberal. Uh, so tell us about your uh, activities uh, in the social arena and uh, how uh, your political conservatism uh, impact uh, what you do uh, in that area. Well, I think, you know, it, it, I, I'm not so sure. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Okay, good. Feel free uh, to correct me, by the way. <laughs> well, 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 it's not to correct you. I, I would just say that the political spectrum has been, you know, upside down, spun in a circle over the last 30 to 40 years. Uh 
and really it even goes back to post-World War II, but you know, that, that, that conversation is for another time. I would say this, my political affiliation is to the people, okay, the, the, the free people of America and the free people of the world, um, the working class, the common folk, um, and I never really much affiliated with a political party. I grew up in the Rondo community, which is, I think, by standards of, you know, historically a liberal community, although, uh, you know, black men, there is a small subset of black men that, that have traditionally uh, voted Republican. I just feel that when I decided to step into the public arena at 21 years old and talk about an issue that was supposed to be bipartisan, and I saw a liberal establishment that had promoted themselves as being human rights oriented or human welfare oriented, tried to subvert me, tried to undermine me, and, also, and ultimately tried to defame and mischaracterize me, I understood that the political game was, was being played in a very dirty way, okay? And, mm -hmm. and that would come to fruition. My, my, my skepticism about that would be found warranted in, in the years that have followed over the, you know, this 2013 is what, eight years ago, <laughs> right? All, that's how much our political landscape has changed over the last eight years. Now, I guess I, some of the, I was raised Catholic, okay? So I'm, I'm a Catholic on multiple sides of, of, my, of my family. My Mexican family's Catholic, my black family was Catholic. We were, I was baptized at St. Peter Claver under uh, Father Kevin McDonough there in St. Paul, who is, is a very, uh, a very loved person in, in, in our community. So I have those values. Um, I believe in Jesus Christ, I guess by, by our political standards now, that automatically makes you a conservative. Uh, and and, and uh, I think where the political arena has come now, I certainly am a conservative and, and proudly so. Uh, I believe that, you know, men are men and women are women. And uh, yeah, I, I, don't think, I don't think adults should be able to have conversations with my children about their genitals or their sexual orientation without my consent at, at, at the public schools we pay tax dollars for. I think the church of L LGBTQ uh, is not is, is being merged with the state and instead of being kept separate, which which is unconstitutional and, and in my opinion. Uh, and the same thing for you know the scientism that that's making its way into into our lives every day. You know, so so that that's that's kind of where I'm at right now, just from a political worldview standpoint, but. I think a lot of people were mis had you know had misconceptions about who I am because after George Floyd was murdered and, and I do believe he was murdered um, the the court the, the 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 court findings or the court the verdict says that he was murdered um, but I felt the need to go out into the, into the community uh, at that time and lead. Uh, and I wasn't exactly sure what that meant. I knew what I had experienced with the NBA, with the corporatocracy, with this negligent, arrogant move towards globalism um, and ultimately tyranny and establishment status quo. 
And I felt like the George Floyd situation was going to be a time where people came together in the community and, and, and you know, exchanged ideas. And right. I had a feeling that people were going to be misled during that time. Right. So I stepped up. And, and by default, because the majority of the people who participated in protests post-George Floyd were at least loosely associated with Black Lives Matter, the organization, many people just assumed that I was Black Lives Matter, but I've never been involved with that organization. Um, I'm not involved with that organization. And, and in fact, I, I couldn't disagree with the ethos of that organization more on a fundamental level. Um, obviously, I have already expressed plenty of ideas that, that, that suggest that I'm very anti-neoliberal wokeism. Um, right. and, and I think there's a ton of double crosses, triple crosses, and outright lies that are taking place with that movement uh, in the, at minimum. And, and there's worse stuff than that. Right. Worse stuff primarily being that they're radical atheists and, and this entire neoliberal movement is really predicated around the, the proliferation of sin. Um, but yeah, I think that right. when it came to George Floyd, <laughs> I didn't see his murder as the direct product of a racist cop. Right. Okay? right. It's not for me to understand what was in Derek Childman's mind the day right. that George Floyd died, okay? And from being a mental health advocate, I know how complex the human psychology can be. Right, right. And, uh -huh. and to, so to assess those kind of things on the spot in a situation like that is tough anyway. But mm -hmm. guess what? I don't need to know those things in order to know that Derek Childman was guilty right. in contributing to the death of George Floyd. And I also went out to tell people that the bigger question that must be asked is about the monopoly on violence that the state has and what the implications are for our lives, irregardless of the cop civilian dynamic. And, and that the police departments were really pawns of a bigger corporatocracy, which is why we led our protests to the Federal Reserve and, and asked the question, where's the 30 trillion dollars, where the 30 trillion dollars go? That, that we've run up in national debt. 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 Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and so, you know, I asked those questions and, and, and ultimately I told the people when I went out to protest, listen, the state has a monopoly on violence and it was George Floyd now, but it'll be you tomorrow. And, and a lot of people, even conservatives would disagree with that, but I, I, I would caution them to, to look at the vaccine mandates and who will carry out those mandates. See, one of the huge conservative values that you and I understand is the rule of law, mm -hmm. right? But, but my point was to the Black Lives Matter crowd, you can say that's what you want to call them. Um, I know many people out there weren't Black Lives Matter too, but, but that was the, the general banner that was being flown, um, which we denounced. We tried to denounce that intentionally and said, no, we're the free people of America. This is our organization. You guys can walk with us because this is a free country. And right. if MAGA people wanted to walk with us or anybody else, that would be their right. Uh, mm -hmm. And we would invite that because ultimately we are fighting against an establishment tyranny. Mm -hmm. But my bigger point to, to them was, and, and my point to conservatives even now is, when the rule of law, when, when lawmakers are blatantly corrupt, are outright corrupt, then the people who enforce laws are also corrupt. And the rule of law is undermined. 
Okay, so it, it, it doesn't have to be about George Floyd. That right, mentality, right. that culture right. is going to come down to bear heavy on all of us. And it's happening right now with the vaccine mandates. Right, right. right. The police are going to be the one. The police are the ones that are arresting uh, cerebral palsy, handicapped, middle-aged white women in New York City for eating in a restaurant without a vaccine card. So right. to me, she's George Floyd. <laughs> right, you know, right, she, she right. wasn't killed, fortunately, but right. there will come a day very soon if we don't change the trajectory of this thing where police are going to use all of their um, misplaced aggressions on the citizens. And, and ultimately, you know, I told the Black Lives Matter crowds, listen, you, we have to have a, a full-throated conversation about citizenship. And, and what is the value of citizenship? What does it mean? To, what does sovereignty mean? And well, uh, they looked yeah. at me like I had three eyes. They're like, well, because they don't care about sovereignty, citizenship. <laughs> what are you talking about? We're, we're here to talk about intersectionality. And I was just like, all of you are corrupt. And, 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 you know, and they wanted me off the front line for that. But I just told them, hey, listen, I'm a black man. I don't have to go anywhere. Uh, that, that's a good thing to end on. Uh, 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 but here's the thing, and I've been waiting for this. We're going to end on a positive note to our young people. And uh, we talked before, of course, we've talked before. And you know one of my pet peeves is you got these athletes making worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And when they talk to our youth, they're talking to them about how unfair life is and all the obstacles out there. They're not talking to them about setting goals, sacrifice, making good choices, working hard. I don't hardly hear any of that kind of come out of any of our professional athletes when they're talking to our children. Our children already hear enough all day, every day, how unfair life is and how what happened 300 years ago, uh, you can't overcome and those type of things. I'm looking for one professional athlete to talk to our children about things like discipline and education and, and sacrifice and not make them sound like, make it sound like they are a victim of anything. So leave us with a positive message for our young people, Royce. Well, I think that the, the great thing about this country is that there are a lot of things in motion that are obstacles for a lot of people, primarily the working class, irregardless of race. But the way our country has been set up, you do have the opportunity to overcome those obstacles, dependent upon how focused and determined and disciplined you are. At the same time, I, I don't lie to young people. I don't lie to my kids. I wouldn't lie to your kids. I wouldn't lie to anybody's kids. I think this radical paternalism that the establishment has engaged in is, is part of the reason we're in the crisis we're in. So I tell kids the truth. And the truth is that they have been lied to. And I'm not talking about black kids. I'm talking about kids in general. Uh, and they will continue to be lied to. And, and the, great, the great lie is that they live in a country where the value of freedom is first and foremost. And that's not true. It's not true. That's in danger. And, and it's going to be their generation that has to make a decision on whether this country moves closer to freedom or tyranny. And, and I would tell them that 
or encourage them that if you correct for the three fifths of human in the Constitution, in the early, you know, in the, in the Constitution, that we have a good Constitution. We have a Constitution that's a great foundation for society, for a country. That America is a great country. Um, it, it definitely has some some huge problems. Most of them have to do with people trying to subvert the Constitution. And, and I'm not talking about the, the insurrectionists on January 6th. I'm talking about uh, the intelligence community, for example, that, uh, you know, that that uh, conspired with the telephone companies to surveillance uh, everyday Americans unconstitutionally. Um, so, you know, they're going to be the ones that get to decide where this country is going. And uh, and freedom should be their should be their choice. Freedom should be what they what they fight for. And that there's real glory in that and that there's real reward with with God uh, in this life and the next through that. Um, and, and yeah, that's that's what I would tell young people fight for freedom um, and, and uh, seek first the kingdom of righteousness uh, of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Uh, good thing to end on, except I, I got one last thing and I can't let you go without you got a T-shirt on there. Yeah. Tell us the story behind your T-shirt there. I will. Yeah. Quick, quick uh, two minute story, a little quick, quick couple minutes. You know, the, the Uyghurs, I think, is the one of the defining issues of our time, if not the defining issue of our time. It, it is one of those issues that's a litmus, a litmus test for ideas like justice and freedom. And, and we live in a society that is full of virtue signaling, full of, uh, you know, phony humanitarians. Uh, and, and I think that their plight, what they're facing, uh, this genocide that's being perpetrated by the, the Chinese Communist Party there in, in East Turkestan, where they've put these ethnic minorities, these, these Turkic Muslims, these Chinese Muslims in concentration camps, is, is one of the most atrocious things to happen in, in our generation. And um, I see a bunch of people Black people, by the way, uh, black elites, black public figures who have platforms look away from this issue as though the injustice being done to these two million Muslims is not a reflection of, of, of our own moral decadence, of our own capitulation and selling out. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I wear the shirt because every time I get a chance because I think the establishment has done a good job to downplay just how serious of an issue this is mm -hmm. uh, and what the implications are for the world and, and make no mistake about it America is divided right now and, and I'm not talking about Trump and Biden I'm talking about people who believe in freedom who believe in America and people who believe that America is just going to be um, a, a part of this new global society where we're all global citizens, but really it means you don't own anything and you're going to like it. You don't own a single, and you don't have any real citizenship because once the constraints are off and it's global, mm -hmm. there's, there's nothing, there's no value to where you belong to your nation. And, and that's mm -hmm. the fundamental mechanism of the nation state. So, um, yeah, you know, just for example, the world economic forum, 
which is a, a, a global a global organization that brings together the world's leaders of industry and tech and thought leaders and authors and all of these different media and everybody else, the, the world's most influential people um, held their summit for the year. And they invited Xi Jinping, the, the president of China, to be the keynote speaker. And, and it's not by coincidence that the follow-up speaker was Dr. Fauci, okay? Um, and, you know, there is a very strong contingent of people in America that is completely fine with China's rise to power because they covet the authority of Xi Jinping. They, they, are, they are okay with authoritarianism. And it's the, it's the liberal establishment for sure, but, but there's also a bunch of neocons and rhinos in the Republican Party that have played their role in the, the rise of China as well. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of this, you know, let's fatten our pockets on the way down idea, right? And, and I, I don't know what these people think, to be honest, Lacey. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if they think when the, when, the, when, the, when the stuff hits the fan the next time, all these people who are trying to save their shekels is bitcoins and you know cryptos and stocks and bonds and investments and real estate and all it's not going to be there when the stuff hits the fan the next time okay it, it, nobody's getting bailed out <laughs> and if right. you do get bailed out this time it's going to come with an explicit agreement that your morality and freedom are going along with the with the bailout um, and, and there's going to be no place in the chinese empire paradise for some of these sellouts like Nancy Pelosi and Biden and Mitchell McConnell and, and all of these other uh, capitulators. So yeah, the Uyghurs are, are an example of, a, of an oppression and a genocide against them, but they're a sign of the things to come. Well, sound like we have a lot to talk about when we go out and grab a cup of coffee or whatever, a beer or lunch or whatever about geopolitical and strategies and history. And I'm looking forward to that. Once again, uh, very proud of you as uh, Minnesota athletes who went on to bigger and better things. You haven't forgotten where you came from. Uh, you haven't forgotten your principles. You haven't forgotten your faith. Uh, and uh, we just ask you to keep up the good work. And i like to personally thank you for being on the uh, guest on our podcast. And so looking forward to seeing you soon and very proud of your accomplishment. Keep fighting for us out there. Thank you, brother. Godspeed. Okay. Yeah, same to you, Royce. Thanks a lot. Thank and uh, for our audience, thank you for joining us. I hope you had a peek at the life of a professional ball player, someone who still remember where he come from, still connected to his community, still in personal principles. And uh, let's go out and make this the best country we can make it, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Good night from Lacey Johnson at Bright Lights. Thank you. <laughs>